That's the IMDb trivia I need for every movie. Who who hooked up on set? That's okay, what I want. Okay, yeah, know. yeah. Like like did I, they or didn't? Yeah, they? I need the dish. Well, it's like the Oscars, right? The whole like uh, um, Lady Gaga, um, mm, Bradley yeah, Cooper yeah, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. right? I, I like uh, Lady Gaga's very uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Diplomatic, coy, coy answer of like. Did my job right, didn't I, you idiots? Right. Well, it is. I don't believe acting. her for a fucking second, for what it's worth. So here's the thing: if you find yourself with the chance to bang Bradley Cooper, especially beardy Bradley Cooper. Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, right. You? How could you not? That's all I'm saying. I'm with you, Kirsten. I don't believe her. I want to believe her because why would why would Gaga lie to lie to her adoring fans? But also, why would you not lie to your adoring fans? They're a bit much. And it was also safe to assume, like in the 40s and 50s, that the leads were probably just going to hook up anyway. Right, yeah. Right. Especially oh, if they had yeah. that great chemistry. For sure. Fred and Ginger. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Bogey and Bacall. I mean, Bo- that's Bogey how the whole thing started. Well, no, Bogey and Bergman. Bogey and Bacall were married. Oh. But I mean, they oh, met the on Bergman, set. though. That's, yeah. Like, that's the affair, right? That's what you want to know about. Well, but, I mean, Ber- Bogey was married when he met Bacall. And they had a thing on oh, set. Oh, they w- he was. That's right. Hollywood. It's like high school. 42 only and more expensive. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Good Trash Honorcast. Hey, we're here to talk about the movies you've never talked about in a film studies course. We are doing um, Women's History Month this month of March, and uh, we are looking at a different sort of marathon. And this week's film is Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert, and she is a lady. And that's why we're doing that. Yes. Also, Pet Cemetery is very fun. And it also happens to have a, a, uh, a remake coming out very soon. Yes. It does. And so we are also being slightly topical. Uh, programming is serendipitous this month. Yes. And so we are going to do that thing that we always do. And we're going to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And we used to have like warnings and buffers and all kinds of things to avoid spoilers, but we don't care anymore. So uh, get ready. Um, that's going to happen. But before we do any of that, let's go ahead and identify these disembodied. Body voice to speak to your brain. This week we have a guest host, our own frightful femme. Ma'am, who are you? My name is Kirsten Thurkelson. Excellent. We're so glad you're here on this show talking the horror and talking the lady stuff because yeah. you're like into both of those things. Um, who are you, sir, across the way? My name is Dalton Stewart and uh, don't don't buy a house that close to a highway. Just don't. Just just. Yeah. Why um, would you do that? Why would you do that? Stay um, in what, Chicago? Yeah, stay in Chicago. Yeah, just stay in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, Maine is bad. Very, very true. Very name true. Th- name name four good things about Maine. Other lobster. Lobster rolls, obviously, yes. Lobster. That's, about that's, it. that's why I said end, four. That's end of list. Yes. Yeah. Ma- maple syrup. Stop. New Hampshire. Well, no, better maple Canada? syrup in Maine. Right? I don't I'm know. not just a go uh, to maple Canada. connoisseur. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. That's just Sia Bartlett. That's a fictional character. You cannot <laughs> I'll go no, ahead. And I'll give you Stephen from King. New Hampshire, not Vermont. That's right. All okay. Right. So, point is, don't go to Maine. There you go. Don't go to Maine. Hey, who are you to my left? I am Arthur Gordon, and also don't buy a house that close to a pet cemetery. Mm-mm. Excellent, excellent. My name is Dustin Sells, and a man's heart is stonier than shut up. And <laughs> such <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> anyway, so here we are talking about this crazy movie. So we're gonna go right into our review section, and uh, again, this is not a spoiler-free zone. So feel free to spoil as you wish as you talk about whether or not you like the movie Pet Symmetry. Well, Dustin, I know this is Pet a new... Pet Symmetry. Cemetery? Symmetry. Pet Seminary. So before we start talking about Pet I would watch that. 
Dustin, you forgot. I know the new format's still tricky for you, but Arthur's got you got a synopsis for us. There? Oh, synopsis. we do have synopsis. Okay, let's we are still it. doing that thing. A, re- a real thing synopsis, not like a like a IMDb. Correct. Okay, so do the real thing. All right, let me find it. Um, the Creed family, uh, Adonis and wait, no, uh, <laughs> Lewis, Rachel, and their children, Ellie. Do and they Gage. come back black? Is that the story? I think you've just unlocked some subtext in this film that we're going to have to talk about, but we'll get there later. Uh, This family, they moved from Chicago uh, to rural Ludlow, Maine, and after Lewis is offered a job as a doctor with the University of Maine, uh, they befriend their elderly neighbor, Judd Crandall, who takes them to an isolated pet cemetery in the forest behind the Creed's new home. After tragedies begin to befall the Creed household, Judd reveals that the pet cemetery might be more than a final resting place for family pets. There you go. That's cemetery with an S, not to be confused with a pet seminary, which I'm glad, Kirsten, you like that idea because I would like to hear that as well. I I think that would be fun. Um, So I just want to see a golden retriever. I just want to see a golden retriever really get through to those kids. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to see a golden retriever also get through to those kids. (laughs) He's got his collar on. Yeah. I want to see a Rottweiler wrestle with liberation theology. That's what I want to see. It's very interesting. (laughs) And also very different than Pet Seminole, which is also a different movie. (laughs) Uh, Pet Seminary as an anthology series of just different dogs grappling with theology of all sorts. There's something uh, with uh, Dog and God. Here, yes, I don't know for what sure. It is. Uh, so yeah, this is a movie. Yeah, Vox Populi, Vox Day. You right? The voice of the people is the voice of dog. <laughs> anyway, oh well, my, yeah, that's no. uh, you know uh, when uh, you get soft chuckles in silence, that's how you know a joke landed. We need to we need to move <laughs> on. Hey Arthur, hey Arthur, hey, hey, do you do you like Pet Cemetery? Oh, not so much. Oh, wow. tell, me, okay. tell me, tell me why yeah. not. Well, I think I, I hindered myself by finishing the book right before watching it the book is good the book is very good uh and the movie just does this thing where it pulls every big beat from the novel without really trying to justify or explore them um and so i i kind of struggled with that because i mean it is as far as ad as as far as like a faithful um pulling the book to screen adaptations go this is probably one of the most accurate but I think it is faithful to a fault, and that hurts it uh, more than anything. And so, yeah, I just, I just couldn't do it. I, I will say though, we we talked about this off air already that uh, Fred Gwynn as Judd is inspired casting. So kills good. it. Um, Lieutenant Yar as the wife uh, is a is a good fun bit. And uh, but uh, Sam Worthington as doppelganger <laughs> uh, as Bobo. Lewis. Bobo Sam Worthington, yeah. Was just uh, it was it was a rough one. He's he's not far from the dad from uh, Troll Two. Um, he's not oh, that far removed from that performance. Goodness. Oh my goodness! And so it, that 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 really took me out of it. Uh, I did like the way they kind of incorporated Pascal here. He's kind of got a different role than than this ghost in the book. I don't like it, but okay. I like elements of it. I, I don't like how on the nose he is, uh, and he's really the only thing kind of. Well, because you know make, that there's some some yeah. kind of force uh, about he makes, this place. He makes uh, Papa Papa Cree look like a friggin' dipshit. Yeah. by being so on the nose at every second. Yeah, I, I think it just uh, you know it's just running through the beats and it moves so fast, but you don't have time to really resonate with a, a story that should be really dealing with grief and and loss and and uh, grappling with that. It doesn't do much of that at all, and, and so I, I think. You know, reading that book, which does delve into those, you know, it's such a long process before we even get to the loss of the child in the book. I mean, it's like the last 
maybe hundred pages of the book and you know of, of the four hundred pages. And so it's it's really about getting to that point and the movie just kind of rushes through it all. And so that that really lost it for me. Um I, I do like the rule setting. I, I like the the incorporation of I know they're shooting in Maine kind of on location, which was a uh edict from Stephen King. Interesting. Uh but I think also King lording over this film with his screenplay and having kind of creative control really really hampers it. He hadn't had a lot of uh, experience in that realm. I think he'd had what one one screenplay, Maximum Overdrive, right? Yes. And so I, I really feel like there's a lot of uh, that overriding Mary Lambert's probably direction that I think hinders the film. So for me, it just uh-uh. uh, and I've seen this before, but I didn't remember any of it other than the scalpel to the tendon, mm-hmm. which brings me to my other point, which is I I'm not a fan. Cannot find any believability that Herman Munster or anybody in this cast couldn't just kick this kid across a room. Yeah. Since he's like yeah. very obviously walking towards him in the book. It's, you know, he kind of surprises everybody yeah. and attacks them. But here it's like two minutes of him wandering aimlessly. To yeah, that people Lou and then Creed attacking them. and engage battle scene does not make any sense. Lewis wrestling that baby doll is one of my all time <laughs> favorite things I've ever seen in the movie. So I, I think you can enjoy this if you're just if you know what it's about and if you can kind of buy into the campiness of it. But as a movie, it does not work for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, hey Dalton, do you like Pet Cemetery? Yeah, I, I get what Arthur's saying. It's got something of a of a tone problem, to be sure. Uh, it just it it very much is is steeped in a a late '80s, early '90s aesthetic that I think. Uh, Hurts it at times, but I feel like at other times it kind of lends an otherworldly weirdness to the film that I, I really like. Uh, kind of in that that Lynch school of of stilted camp, kind of building out a feeling of of uncertainty in, in a film. Uh, it's it's got this interesting like anti uh, Job thing going for it too, right? Like the idea. Maybe we'll get into this later. That Lewis is a whether it's God or the random chaos of the universe or the evil forces of the pet cemetery, life is taking a big shit on Lewis, and he just refuses to accept that you cannot control the things that are going to happen to you. And for me, I think that's maybe why it works a little bit better than you, Arthur. It maybe on the page, it's a movie or a book about grief, but I think the film is a is a film about somebody refusing to deal with grief, right? It's it's a film about what happens when you refuse to acknowledge bad things are going to happen. Two different life. versions of that refusal, yeah, yeah. So that for me, it, it works in that regard. I, I also love it as a uh, a movie about a guy who refuses to listen to people in his life, uh, particularly his wife, uh, but also his neighbor. Just like Lewis, fucking stop, buddy. Just listen to the people around you, uh, and you know, don't follow every creepy old man you meet into the woods. Maybe. Yeah, as you're saying, I don't know how much J- Judd actually helps him in this film as, no. as far as advice goes. Not at all. I mean, I think Judd's character is underserved compared to the novel, too. But yeah. Yeah, he's he's got problems. Uh, the whole movie's got problems, though, right? Uh, there's just a, a lot of unpleasantness in this film. Some of it works better than others. Uh, but the Zelda sequences are... De- they're definitely uh, upsetting. They're supposed to be upsetting. and And yet, there's just something about them that feels a little icky to me uh, that I can't quite put my finger on. I think is it, it may... because Zelda's played by a dude? I don't know if it's because Zelda's played by a dude so much. And again, I know we're supposed to be being put in the mindset of Rachel as a child dealing with this older sister uh, dying of some, spinal meningitis. Some, unreal, some unreliability of the narrator, perhaps? Bingo, exactly, yeah. She's obviously much more monstrous in her sister's memory, but it plays weird. 
it, it certainly plays weird. And uh, I, I like the uh, the bravery of King, though, to make uh, one of the most sympathetic characters, Rachel, be super unsympathetic in those moments where she's talking about wanting her sick sister to die. Uh it's a, it's a big character choice, and I, I think it's super interesting, and uh, I think adds to Lewis's refusal to accept death, right? Because he knows that his his it kind of creates this weirdly. I don't know if I want to go as far as to use the word codependent, but it, it creates uh, the two of them having kind of weird communication lines sets up a lot of the problems that uh, Lewis is going to invite into the family's home. So. Uh, it, it definitely has that appeal going for it in terms of, you know, we talk here a lot about horror being one of the most conservative genres, and uh, I think it has that going for it, right? Because it sets up pretty early that most of the things that are going to happen in this film are going to be because Lewis just refuses to to accept that he can't control things. So for all of that, I, I do really enjoy uh, what is here, but I, I get what Arthur's saying. There's, there's a lot that doesn't work, that's for sure. You kind of have to get on its wavelength or uh, you're not going to have a good time. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, hey, Kirsten, uh, set us right. You are the expert, so um, is Pet Cemetery good? Man, you know, uh, I went in really wanting to like it, and I, I've never uh, I've never seen this film before, uh, and I did not get a chance to. I, Stephen King's one of my favorite authors, but I never got a chance to read it. I still plan on it before the, uh, before the release of the new one, um, hopefully. But, uh, man, I wanted to like this, and I thought it was actively bad uh there's and and there's a lot uh, i would compare this movie a little bit with the film uh, gremlins in that it's kind of got that like tonal issue of attacking really dark subject matter but it's it's got this sort of laughable execution in both yeah the effects as well as the acting that i'm just kind of like this was so obviously accidental and the pacing really isn't up to speed enough for me to even enjoy it as, as like a camp film or anything like that. I just, it has such glaring issues for me that I, it's not, it's not that I didn't enjoy watching it at times. It's that I don't think I'd watch it again on purpose. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And, and I think I, I can definitely see where there is the outline of, something good uh in in that story and i'm still very much looking forward to uh to seeing the the remake um and i i i think that it's i think it's going to fix a lot of the issues that i had with this film it's really interesting with this film in a post it world uh it chapter one i Mm -hmm. mean it's weird to watch a stephen king uh adaptation i mean it must have been weird at the time i mean the Shining was already one of the biggest films of all time when this film came out. It's weird to have so many no names in this cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just it, it kind of lends the the film an air of uh, of of a budget production. And yeah, I think that rubs off on some of the uh, the makeup effects that we get in the movie. Um, that's a good point, though, Kirsten. I, I see why what holds you back from it. But yeah, I, 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 those were the things that I I struggled with. That for whatever reason, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm, I'll go with it. And I guess I can see where the story would deal a lot heavily with grief, whether that be in dealing with grief or in the refusal of dealing with grief. I just, 
I think that the film tries to get around a lot of the stuff that's happening with characters mentally and putting that on screen. I think that it fails in a lot of ways. I think that's totally fair. Does um, it have you more or less excited for the remake? I think more excited. Okay. Uh, I Somehow I managed to go without knowing almost anything about the story at all, except that there was a pet cemetery involved. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, so. At what point were you absolutely certain the baby was going to eat it? Was was gonna eat it? Yeah. Oh, was, was oh, uh, get get, get run over, straight murdered by a truck while yeah. chasing after. God, that is such a brutal scene. See that moment works for me r- really well. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's, brother. The it's cut the to fact, black. It's the fact. Well, okay. Well, so there's there's some successes in this movie for sure. And I think that that makes its failures just that much starkly, like more starkly contrasted. Totally fair. Because I'm just like, oh, I see what you could have been, uh, and then. It just comes up short again, especially my main issues are with the effects and the acting. Ooh, yeah, it's it's just so hard. The scene where uh, the scene where Hot Dad is rolling back and forth, he's having a, a nightmare about his kid getting run over, mm-hmm. and he's rolling back and forth, and he rolls off the bed and immediately <laughs> hits his head, concusses himself. <laughs> right. It looks like in real life uh, on on that <laughs> bedside table. I rewound it and watched it a couple times because I just couldn't believe that it happened. Well, that's Dustin, going for it as an actor right there. Re- he really is going for it, and I think he misses it. Commitment's uh, important. A lot. Commitment is very he commits important. commits so hard, and t- to, what, uh, to what end? Dustin, you're the only person here with children. What's this do for you? Okay, I'm like probably four or five degrees warmer than you guys. Okay, but that's about it. I think you're. I think you and me might be on the same page. I like it quite a bit better than Kirsten and it's, Arthur. It's it, there is a uh, there's a certain nostalgia. I mean, for first and foremost, there's a certain nostalgia. Just I've known this film my whole life, so I mean that's a thing. And I do find Zelda terrifying. And it, she and the whole Rachel flashback sequences and then the Rachel sort of hallucination sequences, I find them to be really terrifying. Like genuinely like they're upsetting to me. Um, so I think that's very effective. I think the Achilles tendon slicing and the gore effects to be, again, really, really arresting. And so I like all that about this particular movie. Um, as far as like the way it works out, I mean, Rachel's not even as weirdly anti-tell-your-kids-about-death as she is in the book. I mean, that that's like, like the one thing. It's like you don't really quite buy all of that. And despite the fact they have this whole promise that you're going to tell, you, tell the daughter that church is fine, you know, like, and if she doesn't, like, you got to handle that. Like, like that whole sequence, it doesn't really pay off the... Um, the tension between the two creeds. Yeah. Um, it, and, and so it, it doesn't quite work. It's It's almost like... This novel belongs as a novel and as a film, unless you're going to really like invest yourself in a psychological character development drama, it's just not going to work. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I'm always amazed when a Stephen King adaptation succeeds because a lot of the elements of his stories are so like deeply mental. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they're deeply mental, deeply character driven. Things that take place inside and, like, characters' minds. A movie like Misery works because mm-hmm. you can see all of what's going on with all of that. But because it's very, very limited cast, it's very limited in terms of plot. Like there are like plotty little moments, but that's all you have. Uh, with a movie like or a novel like a Pet Cemetery, there's a lot that happens as well, and you've got to get that stuff 
you know, done. Well, I think what we're getting at is the question of when does the rubber meet the road in a film, right? Because all the things that we're talking about, I think, add up to if you like the movie, you ignore these things, right? You, in your dumb brain and dumb heart, will do the work for the movie. You will fill in the blanks with your own experiences. And I think that's why... I think the, the Zelda sequences frighten me as well, Dustin. I mean, if, if you've ever watched somebody die slowly in real life, it's not cool. No. Uh, so for me, that Zelda sequence is super frightening, but that part of why it's frightening is because I find it so grotesque and a little disrespectful. <laughs> but that that still pulls me in enough right. that I, I think I'm with you that what the film lacks in terms of those those interior lives that you're alluding to curse and all that interior mental life mm-hmm. that the film doesn't bring i think i sketch a little bit of it for the film because i'm pulled in more than uh, you or arthur are well and that's where the pascal stuff doesn't work because the pascal stuff is all happening in terms of dreams in the novel and it's all the sort of and it, it's combined with those sort of individualized psychological unrest that the individual characters are experiencing ellie experiences pascal rachel experiences pascal. well ellie's got the shining for sure right and oh the, the shine yeah for sure yeah. For yeah, sure, and, and so does Lou. They they all sort of have different encounters with him, but they're all kind of in the realm of dream, and they're all again very much framed and veiled or lampshaded by their own individual perspectives and experiences in the novel. And in the movie, he's just the ghost who tells you things. He's Jacob Marley just showing up and just saying, "Hey, this is what's up." It felt like somebody was just a really big fan of an American Werewolf in London. Yes, yeah. yes. And I, I feel like that was a big pool here for Pascal. Yeah, yeah. And so that doesn't really work. Um, and I think Judd, I, Judd is an oh. adorable character in the book. And in the movie, he seems like just like a creepster old man. I have to say, again, not knowing anything basically about the story, like going into it, I thought Judd was going to wind up being a bad guy. Kill everybody. I thought that he was going to be the one who had killed the cat to see... What they would do. to see what mm. they would do, yeah. If, if they that could bring the cat back, or yeah. yeah. I I thought that he was kind of a string puller in but that. Like Fred wins, like you know, performance, and like when he's like, "Hey, do you know what graveyards really are? They're places where the dead people talk and like laughing, and like it does sort of like have this. It was off, unsettling. Yeah, this off-putting thing, and and Judd's not that kind of guy at all in the book. He's interesting. See, he he reads as weird for me, but I, I he reads as friendly weird. Yeah, no, no. Judd is like a super great, like uh, salt of the earth kind of New England yeah. man, you know. And and I, I in a think, weird way, uh, like Frank Wynn's um, accent is perfect. Oh, it's so good. Like he kills all that stuff. But in the novel, he's very much just a nice guy who just you know let me take care of you. I, I've got extra sweet corn for my harvest. Let me give you some of that. Like just hanging out with you kind of guy. Hmm. And uh, come over to my front porch and we'll drink some beer together, Lou. And that's it. I mean, that's really their relationship. It's just the nice guy across the street who is like this very, very um, affable, adorable, elderly man. And also, hey, I'll show you this thing. Oh, your cat died. And you were – and the, the the wife of Judd has written out of the novel – or the movie entirely. Yeah. Entirely. She's got terrible arthritis, and she has a heart attack, and it's, it's very sad in the book. And uh, because Lou has done such great effort as a doctor to do a favor, he's like, okay – I don't want Ellie's favorite pet to die quite this young for her. So I'm going to do this thing for you, and I want this to be a thing for you, but this may be a way in which you can help her learn that dead is better without knowing that church has died. I, I, see, I get that from the like, film, it's though. It's very much a favor. Yeah, I, from the film, I don't get it as a favor, but that makes sense that in the novel there's more of you know uh, Lewis helping out J- Judd 
you know, as a caretaker. But I get in the in the film for sure, and again, we'll probably get into this in analysis. I I get because Judd says, no, 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 that's not Ellie's cat anymore. This is your cat. Yeah. You're responsible for this hell beast, and this is what's going to teach both you, you idiot, and also your daughter who has a past for being an idiot because she's a child. Right. It's going to teach both of you dipshits that debt is better. It How'd that go? Oh, it went poorly. Not, not, not great. But that seems like a bad character choice because Judd's been through this. That's yeah. a good point. And I think that be from talking about frightening sequences, Judd's flashback story oh, fucked his, me up bad. Yeah. yeah, his dog is terrifying. Which one, the dog or Both. the boy? Yeah. Both. But you're right, Arthur. I mean, we have enough knowledge about Judd that why why is Judd doing this? And I mean, a lot of that's pulled from the book. And I, I think the big thing, especially with mine and Dustin's drawbacks here, are, are about adaptation. I think we can mm-hmm. come back to that later in analysis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but I I do love the performances. I think I think they're fine. I think Lou is a little, you know, hot dad is a little over the top at times. But I think uh, Lieutenant Yar kills it. I think the child actors kill it. The kid from Dream Child is awesome. Um, Blaze Burndall and her twin sister, who doesn't get credit in the initial credits, uh, which is too bad. We have two twins. Who are playing Ellie uh, throughout the film, um. and um, yeah, they're they're great, you know. And so I I like that. I even like Mr. Goldman, Erwin uh, Goldman, you know, playing Dad in this very sort of Jewish kind of way from Chicago. Like I'm all about that. Uh, but it it's it it just feels like it feels hasty. Mm. It feels like this is better as a TV miniseries. This is better as at least a longer movie or at least mm-hmm. a maybe higher budgeted film. Well, and I think the the star power we're getting with this new remake, I mean, it's got quite the cast. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, John Lithgow, obviously. I'm excited obviously. to see John Lithgow. Uh, Jason, Clark. Jason Clark, who I adore. I, I'm not familiar a whole lot with uh, the actress playing Rachel, but I did like her quite a bit. She's in um, Upstream Color, the Shane Ruth movie. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely a, a pretty standout cast. Uh, I don't know what the budget is on that one, but uh, from the trailers, it, it looks significant. It, it's got higher. that sheen on it, that's for yeah. sure. The money's on the screen. Isn't she also in, uh, she's in those two Ty West movies too, right? Oh shit, you are absolutely yeah. right, Kirsten. Who is it? Yeah. Uh, her name is Amy, uh, Smites. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's in a couple of Shane West or Ty West movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's also briefly in Alien Covenant as well. Uh, she's got some, oh, she's on Lean, in, Lean on Pete from a couple of years ago. I know some people that really enjoy that one. So again, great cast uh, is our point for that remake. Uh, maybe we'll get something, uh, Something that pleases everybody a little bit more in a couple of months when that comes out. Mayhap, mayhap. So there you go, dear listener. Um, those are our initial thoughts. I don't even know what's next anymore because we've changed everything. Tell me, Dalton, what am I doing? Well, real quickly, we'll do a corrections corner. Last week, uh, while talking about uh, Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, I ta- said, uh, say in script, I meant Hindi. This has been Corrections Corner. Now let's expand the syllabus, shall we? <laughs> oh, that's, there we go. Uh, we're going to expand the syllabus. So what, if you were teaching this class... Uh, in which you were doing some sort of film study stuff, and this film was this week's film and lecture. What additional films would you pull in? What clips would you show in order to further instruct the themes of the pet symmetry? I go to you first. Arthur, what say you? Uh, I had a couple of draws I, I wanted to talk about, and the first was just kind of, we'll, we'll probably flush out a little bit later with adaptation, um, but a book I thought about... Um, that had a really good adaptation when, without necessarily, you know, sticking extremely close to the source material was Annihilation, mm. uh, which is all about kind of capturing a, a mood and a tone rather than, you know, point for point. Yeah, I beats. haven't I haven't read the book, but I've heard it's it's very it's very different in that you're in the character's head and that there's yeah. a, there's a lot of obscured information. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think the movie does a great job of kind of playing with those un, unreliable narrators and those elements and making it its own fever dream in, in, in a way that the book does as well. And so I, I think that's that's one I would recommend if, if you're wanting to kind of work with adaptation. You know, how do you do that? How do you make, you know, the right changes? You know, what do you keep consistent and things like that? Uh, the other movie I would recommend um, if I was going to expand a syllabus would be Pumpkinhead uh, is one. You keep singing the praises. Of I, I love Pumpkinhead, guys. I, I re- really do. Uh, is it James Remar that's in Pumpkinhead? Or no, is it's it... um, oh, it's the other goodness. one that looks like James Remar. I'm gonna kick myself when I remember who it is. Um, I haven't seen that, but I my it's my dad's nickname for me. <laughs> no, it really is. Is it because you're so gothy? Sure. Okay. <laughs> that's the reason. No, ever since I was like a tiny child. It's Lance Henriksen. <laughs> that's yeah. He's uh, the dad. I right? always I I mix up James Remar and yeah. Lance Henriksen. Um, but uh, a, a movie about grieving a lost child and the way Henriksen plays that and this just theme of desperation of you know an utter loss and just that pure horror and the extremities to which a person would go through to right that wrong you know in Pumpkinhead it's vengeance uh, but a lot of those same I think methods and motifs uh, would apply to a movie like Pet Cemetery. you know just what would you be driven to do if you lost your child mm. And so I think Pumpkinhead really handles that. And, and it has a very similar budget and very similar design. You know, it's very low budget, very 80s uh, horror film. Um, but I think it does a lot more within its limitations than something like Pet Cemetery does. So that would be my other uh, element to expand the syllabus. All right. Well, how would you expand the syllabus, Mr. Dollister? You're teaching this class, and this is your augment. There's a lot of homework this week. Uh, oh, we yeah. don't have all day. We'll keep it brief. We don't have a whole semester here. We'll keep it brief. Um, I, I've been thinking, uh, I thought about this immediately, but I've been thinking about it more as we've been discussing Bet Cemetery. But one of the first things I thought about was uh, the very recent Netflix adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which I think goes to show, as I think has come up a couple of times, having a television show gives you a little bit more time, especially if you are dealing with grief. I think it allows you a little bit more room to interrogate inner life and, and, you know, these all these questions that we've been talking about. all and these fleshing out characters. Exactly. All these mental states that we've been discussing. I think the haunt, it, look, it doesn't bring me any joy to tell you that something on Netflix is good. I don't like this. I don't enjoy it. But fucking, it's a great television show. It's one of the best television shows I've ever seen. So uh, I, I really think if you want to see what Pet Cemetery is going for, uh, The Haunting of Hill House uh, from... Mm, can't think of his name. It's really Arthur. You want Flanagan? Help? There we go, Mike Flanagan. Uh, really incredible stuff going on over there. Uh, another great depiction of grief uh, as it uh, can rub up against uh, the supernatural. And again, in television, let's go check out Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the episode "The Body," which we have talked about on this podcast many times before, but it bears repeating here. Uh, one of the all-time great moments of any piece of uh, media or entertainment about dying uh and again i think another example of having that longer form storytelling gives you more time to be invested in a character especially if you don't know going in one of those characters is going to die um several seasons down the road so a great episode of television that we won't talk a whole lot about in case you haven't seen the body we don't want to spoil that for you um I'll go ahead and be brief because I don't want Dustin Arthur to get mad at me. We'll keep it down to two more recommendations. Let's go back to the late 80s. Let's get real weird with it. Let's uh, let's do a film that does 
get inside of our main character's head a little bit better, let's go check out Jacob's Ladder, uh, starring Tim Robbins, uh, my uh, my birthday buddy. Tim and I have the same birthday, which means uh, I don't something. It go out for drinks. Anything at all? It means something. Hang out. Nothing at all. Everything means something. Nothing. Everything means nothing. Uh, Jacob uh, Jacob's Ladder is <laughs> so damn good. You guys seen Jacob's Ladder? We're gonna do it on the show someday. Yeah. Uh, it it just does such a better job, I think, at giving you a character who is not sure if they are insane or not, giving you a character who is not sure what the right thing to do is in any given moment because they have no context for their actions most of the time because they keep finding themselves waking up in situations they don't expect to be in. And I feel like that's what this film's trying to give us with Lewis, right? It's trying to give us a Lewis that is more and more disoriented and detached from reality the further the film goes. And I don't, I don't feel like that's accomplished very well here, but it's accomplished a great effect and Jacob's Ladder. And finally, uh, I'm going to say Ghost Story. Uh, we talked a, a lot a couple of months ago about The Old Man and the Gun uh, from that director. And uh, just a year or two before that, he did this really great movie called A Ghost Story that I love quite a bit. Uh, it's got an actor in it who uh, is under a sheet for most of the movie. So if you've got an issue with that actor, you don't have to look at his face, which is nice. Because... Uh, I don't like looking at his face, to be perfectly honest. You also get to watch Rudy Mara eat an entire pie, which is just a thing Sad. that happens. It's very upsetting. It is incredibly upsetting. But I, I really like David Lowry a lot. I think he is one of the most nuanced filmmakers working today. Uh, just the weird breadth of projects he takes, whether it's a ghost story or Pete's Dragon or The Old Man and the Gun. I'm just a big fan of his work, and I think a ghost story is one of the best films in recent memory about grief. Uh, and it lets a film about the dead be about the dead instead of the people who are left behind in an interesting way. So those are my picks for expanding this syllabus. Excellent, excellent. So, Kirsten, you're teaching a class. Pet Cemetery's on the syllabus. I am so glad that everybody went uh, grief, because uh, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, that a, uh, I think that a film that deals really well with uh, trying to put an inherently human emotion on screen. It's not necessarily grief, but uh, it is uh, depression uh, mm. would be Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good call. Um, very, very gorgeous film. Just so artistically done and does a really good job of uh, translating human emotion onto screen without really hitting you over the head with it. Um, and then also in the same... Uh, in the same genre as Pet Cemetery, uh, in theory, uh, Hereditary. I had a feeling somebody was going to yeah, get to it. I mean, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. But damn, right? The, <laughs> the, comparing the acting in Hereditary. <laughs> That's not fair. That is to not the fair. acting in Pet Cemetery. You're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's cheating for sure. It's like Lou but, playing gauge in basketball. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not. It's Nobody not ever made Mike Tyson box I don't know. Manny Pacquiao. The, the ups that Gage had on these people killing them, I'd, I'd give him a fair shake in uh, basketball as jump, well. He does leap well from an attic. It's true. <laughs> a baby doll tumbles well out of an attic. Look, I'm just... I'm gonna hey, go, you know what? Regular babies tumble well, too. We're going to keep this metaphor going for a second. Don't put anybody against Tony Collette, especially anybody no. in the late 80s. Absolutely. Don't... Don't make Jose Aldo fight Brock Lesnar. That's not fair. Don't make this an don't make this a late eighties thing either, yeah. because I have seen That's fair. I've seen some fantastic. I mean, just yeah, you're right. You know what? Hey, they you're didn't right. invent they didn't invent good acting in 1995. That's like, a good point. <laughs> that is totally Meryl Streep was working in the late eighties. You're right. Before, but also, well, but yeah. also, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. Hey, Dustin. I know. I've seen a movie before. Okay. I would say if you want to see. Uh, 
<laughs> if you want to see more good by this director, I will say that I found out that she directed Halloween Town 2, which is Whoa! an absolutely uh. fantastic decom Disney Channel original movie. Uh check out Halloween Town 2 if you want to see this director not get uh pro- most likely quashed by Stephen King's <laughs> probably bad ideas yeah. <laughs> about directing. Hey, you know what? That's a fun way to build out the syllabus, though. Uh, I, like I don't that, know that yeah. we've ever had a Disney Channel original movie uh, be uh, recommended as a pairing with the film on the show, but damn, I'm glad we finally got to it. Oh, yeah. Gotta. Dustin, what are we doing, man? So I, I'm thinking first two things. Uh, first of all, I'm thinking... You don't know, of... read anything? Uh, yeah, I am. Oh, fucker. I'm, well, I'm your friend. No, you're not. You're my teacher now in this context. Go okay. ahead. And I'm going to make you do things. Um, but before I do the book, I want to talk about the uh, two uh, short films um, that you would watch alongside this. And they're two Kenneth Anger films. Ooh, you I like Kenneth Anger. Both Scorpio and Lucifer Rising. That's, um, a Scorp- that's Scorpio Rising. Scorpio Rising and Lucifer Rising. Scorpio Rising both- is... Sexy. It and is very sexy. weird. And weird. And that's like the crazy little satanic ritual at the end. And Lucifer Rising wrestles much more strongly with the same ideas. And uh, because of the film's um, engagement with uh, the sort of Native American rituals and dealing with the ideas of death and how we um, inter the dead and all of those questions, I think in terms of cinematic history, I think uh, Anger does some good stuff. And some interesting stuff, and we can begin to talk about um, paganism. We can talk about Christianity and whatnot. That being combined with the feature-length film, The Wicker Man, the original um, from um, Hammer um, Horror, and starring the great Christopher Lee, and just not not the Nick Cage one. Bees, bees. No, we're not doing that one. Um, I mean, you could though. We could, but I'm not. You could. We bees, bees on the side of my face. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them so much. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Look, I I've never seen the original Wicker Man. I know it's much beloved, but in fairness, I've never seen the remake. But I've seen a, a lot of clips. I got a question for you, Dustin. Yes, sir. Does the original uh, Wicker Man involve anybody in a bear costume punching anybody else out? I don't think so. Well, I'm pretty sure the Nick there Cage. There are a lot of costumes, but I don't think there's a bear. Pretty sure I the Nick Cage version's better than. They but, were very Mardi Gras type. But I, I'm going with that. And, and now moving into the sort of like Native American history, ancestry, which, again, the film touches on not enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, the novel really wrestles with in really interesting That's ways. That's the thing that Stephen King has always spent a lot of time doing, which I think yeah. is a cool feature of his fiction, is remembering that uh, most of Maine's folklore predates all the people that are currently named. Right. And so the urtext in American literature is uh, Charles Brockton Brown's Wyland, uh, which is uh, probably the first American Gothic novel. Well, it's probably the first American novel at all. Wow. And it also happens to be a Gothic novel, which has got crazy stuff, like spontaneous combustion. It's got uh, ventriloquism playing a major role in the narrative, which is also crazy. But also this sort of idea of this uh, anxiety about the presence of Native Americans, the treatment thereof, and also the, the, the threat presented by Native Americans. This is really kind of a nuanced story in ways that are really surprising for a novel written before the Revolutionary War. Wow. So um, it's, it's a great novel, and it is very much a tone poem in terms of its gothic tropes because narratively, who cares? I mean, it really does have that feeling, and that's probably why this particular work, unlike, say, A Sleepy Hollow and other early gothic American bits of fiction, got adaptation after adaptation after adaptation in the cinema. Wyland still hasn't had it happen yet, and I really would love to see it. 
But I think Wyland as a novel would be a really interesting sort of like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, connective text uh, for Pet Cemetery as a novel and also the film. So uh, my syllabus expansions are those: uh, the two Kenneth Anger films, uh, also looking at the Wicker Man from the UK, and then finally back to the US uh, for uh, Charles Brockton Brown's Wyland, which you can listen to for free on LibriVox if you want to just like listen to the audiobook. So, well, I, I'm kind of surprised nobody else mentioned it. So I do want to throw out a little bit of love to the original Scary Child movie, The Bad Seed, directed by Mervyn Leroy. Uh, based on the novel and stage play. If you have not caught up with The Bad Seed, go do that. It's important homework for anybody who likes horror movies. Not to be confused with Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds. Uh, although you should go check that out, too, because that's yes, good. Yes, they're good. Uh, and also might be fun for building the syllabus out, weirdly enough, uh, uh, listening to the... Red Right Hand? Yeah, a yeah. little something, <laughs> uh, a little tender mercy. There's good records. But yeah, The, the Bad Seed from 1956 is a hell of a movie. And uh, again, we're just... I was kind of surprised uh, nobody else brought it up, so uh, it feels like important viewing for your spoopy child uh, tropes. Can I throw in one more? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Always. I just want to say that uh, if I... <laughs> the, I'm going to go ahead and make Melancholia interchangeable with uh, an, another Lars von Trier, which is very... Uh, it's very, very adjacent subject matter-wise to Pet Cemetery, which is Antichrist. Yeah, but it's I... really got a lot to do with how much of a strong stomach you have. I think yeah, huh. that film is upsetting. In some ways, is a better fit. I mean, now that you say that, yeah, yeah I'm I'm kind of with you because the witch subtext, right, mm -hmm. and then the paganism, yeah. So, and also very, very upsetting to watch, though. Um, yeah, not a fun time. So, yeah, Melancholia is much more enjoyable. Antichrist is much more upsetting. It's very upsetting, but maybe more on. Yeah, I'm with you. That's a great pick. Well, let's get uh, down to what we came here to do, shall we? Let's get down to business. Yes, business. That business yeah. is uh, analysis, right, Dustin? I think so. Okay, I just want to make sure that uh, that hasn't changed yet. Killing's my business, uh -huh. and business is good. That's weird. Don't say that on air. Okay, sorry. Um, analysis. <laughs> I'm just killing analysis. What? What? What was it? Misunderstood. Uh, so. Uh, what are we going to talk about with this? Uh, let's talk about adaptation first, because we've been sort of beating around that particular bush a lot. So, Arthur, you've read the book. Tell me what you think uh, about like the novel versus this film and why that works doesn't work. I, I, I kind of pointed it out earlier. It is, I mean, this is the Sparknotes version of the novel. It absolutely yeah. Every major beat from the book is in the movie, every one of them. I mean, and it's barely changed. That's what the Stephen King probably influenced. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. He's got the screenplay, and he's kind of got creative control, I think, in his contract with the film. And, and so I think that's a lot of it. And, and I think that's really the hindrance of it because, as we alluded to earlier, we don't really get to flesh out our characters to understand motivations and tensions between you know couples and, and uh, neighbors and all of that stuff. Um, and it really kind of underserves that. And so... There's also a, an industrial component to this as well. Um, so one of the studio ex executives at Paramount loved this screenplay uh, that Stephen King produced uh, for this film, but could not, could not, could not get Paramount to get behind producing it. And mm. then they had a writer strike. Mm. And so they had to find movies that were already written perfectly so you couldn't you wouldn't have to hire an additional writer in order to produce the film that way the sort of steady flow of films coming out of Paramount and the other studios would would not be a problem and so they were oh well we can do this one because we don't have to worry about the screenwriters guild and so 
there isn't any monkeying up of the script, which is sometimes what we think about when in terms of somebody else getting their fingers on it. But there wasn't somebody who sometimes that's a good thing. Somebody who works, you know, significantly with cinema as opposed to the novel at work as well. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I think the big thing for me is in in dealing with adaptation. I've I've always is the spirit of the piece upheld. I think that's yes. the key to a you know an effective and a you know quote unquote good. Um, adaptation. I, I think The Shining. You know, I, I almost talked about it earlier, but that's another one where the the book is kind of there uh, in pieces, and I think the book works to inform the movie. If if you're kind of got questions, um, but I think it really does kind of uphold the the, the spirit of the novel, and I, mm-hmm. I think that's where this Bazan talks about the spirit in adaptation. I think that's yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right on, and I think that's where Pet Cemetery misses because we don't have a movie upholding really the spirit of the, the work and, and yeah. which is weird and, and king's notorious for being sort of precious about his novels uh, yeah he, he you know he's not as bad as alan moore or anything but he he definitely is not shy about being like yeah i wouldn't have made the choices they made and he yeah. often says it about some of his better adaptations which is interesting the adaptations he likes are often not the better ones yeah uh, he loves this movie uh, he loves The Mist, uh, which... Yikes. I know. we've There's diverse <laughs> opinions about that film. But again, the, the films that he gravitates to do seem to... He's looking for something else out of his adaptations, I think, than somebody who is just evaluating it as cinema is looking I for. I think he just wants... Yeah, he wants his stuff brought to life. Well, he wants the... He, he, he sees a film that kills his darlings and says, why'd you do that? You should have yeah. gotten rid of other stuff. My stuff was good enough. Why did you want to... Why'd you get rid of yeah. my good scary beats? And I think the filmmakers who have most successfully worked in his his literature have have adapted the things that made it work as a piece of cinema right i don't think that's i don't think there's anything inherently bad with it i think that stephen king himself might just be bad at it (laughs) i I don't don't think he's good for the movies yeah i don't think so he's just a little touchy about his material too and i don't think he's a particularly cinematic writer either and that's that's part of his problem but he's He's very internal he's a literary writer he writes with a lot of internal monologue again i'm always I'm always amazed at the stuff that they kind of decide to adapt yeah. of Stephen King's. Like, yeah. I, I loved, I loved the the newer It it's movie. Great. Uh, after reading the book, though, I'm kind of just like, man, ha- like, I, I don't know how I would even go about attacking this, like putting this on screen because so much of it is just like, it. It's so it mental. In on yeah. itself. It's yeah. all so mental. There's a lot of. Sp- Parts where it's like and psychological. Yeah, it's both like it's adult narration that bleeds into child narration. Yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. tell you right now, the best Stephen King adaptation has been made yet mm-hmm. because the novel and I don't. Uh, oh, I'm gonna get the title wrong. Through the eyes of the dragon is that the right? Is that the name of it? I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's the, yeah. the fantasy novel. Yeah. Yeah. that he writes. That's perfect for the movies. It is absolutely perfect for the movies, and no one touches. But it's not it, that didn't sell a lot of novels. Yeah, nobody mm-hmm. likes his fantasy or his action novels, and it's super good. And that's the kind of thing is because it's so plotty. Mm-hmm. It's so plotty. And uh, but that's the kind of thing that again Stephen King um, novel fans don't gravitate to. Yeah, one of his more popular recent novels is, is a novella about being lost in a field, the tall grass or whatever. He's he's not known for plot heavy material that often. Right. And so yeah, that's that, that's <laughs> one of the things that sort of weakens uh, what's 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 selected. While we're talking about adaptation choices, I want to take a quick detour and mention: Did you guys know Bruce Campbell was one of the first yeah. choices to play Lewis? Why is that not a thing that happened? That would have been so be much better. That makes me so sad. To I know. know. Yeah. So the the other thing I want to kind of lay out there is what you know. What are the things that work for you, and what's a good adaptation? 
Yikes. If, if just, we mentioned upholding the spirit, but just in general? Yeah. This is see this is why I'll go to oh, go ahead. This is why I don't think that it's inherently bad to as an author be super protective of your material is that I think that one of the best adaptations ever made is actually The Perks of Being a Wallflower, mm. uh, which Stephen Chbosky held out until he had total creative control over how that film got made uh, before he ever made a deal with the studio. And I think that it's just absolutely pitch perfect. And it's a great movie, trans- yeah. It also, it also happens to translate extremely well to mm-hmm. screen as a coming-of-age story. So Yeah, I mean, the way it's it's written does lend itself for sure. Yes. Uh, we had a great time talking about that last year when we did our uh, coming-of-age marathon. But, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about that. He wrote and directed the film, didn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah. It's an interesting choice to make. I think sometimes if you've got the movie in your head already, it does make more sense. But uh, th- I think that's the question. I don't, I don't know that Stephen King ever writes a novel with the film version in his head, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to think of like something like where you don't even have cinema in your brain at all, right? So mm-hmm. I was thinking about like Victorian novels or something from like Shakespeare, and I mean, I think maybe like an adaptation. I mean, I, I'm weirdly going to suggest Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Yes, because it's like this, this yeah. update that does not update the language, and so the language is the vehicle by which all of that narrative is carried, but. All of the trappings, so the swords are all guns, and it's all very much in a Venice Beach. I'm a huge, kind of, I'm a huge proponent of that. Film. I love that movie. It's, it's so stinking good. Oh, I was going to mention uh, Luca Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria remake because uh, that feels more like an adaptation than a remake. Okay. But yeah, let's go yeah, ahead yeah. and stick it novel. I, I like the idea of intentionally choosing something that exists pre-film. So I'll, I'll say, uh, I forgot who directed it, but the the Hamlet from the '90s with Ethan Hawke, I think, okay, is great yeah, yeah. because. It, it takes all of these interesting ideas about royal families and puts them in the most logical uh, current context, which is multinational conglomerate, you know, corporations. Right. It's very much like the Lerman that way. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Exactly. I mean, it, it obviously and needfully adapts the times, but uh, I think takes the spirit of, of the text in a really interesting way. So, yeah, I, I like that idea, Dustin, of uh, when we're talking about adaptations, trying to pick things that are from uh, pre-cinema and, and, and what works about those things is there is a certain – I mean there's a slavishness to faithfulness in some sense, but it's not slavishness in a sense that it really shackles down the cinematic apparatus. And I think that's the problem with um, – again, you know, you've know, you got a plot. You've got things that, ha- that have to happen. Romeo and Juliet have to die at the end. Like you cannot avoid that with telling the story. Uh, you know, uh, Marcuccio's got to die, and he's got to you know curse a pox on both of their houses, right? Like that's got to happen. But how you get there and how you do so in a cinematic way, there's got to be that additional freedom, and that's I think that's Bazan's idea of spirit that you can be very very letterist and literal in your adaptation, and that can just deliver something that's sort of stillborn. Um, but at the same time, when there is that additional freedom, I think it works. And again, that can be dealt with with something that, you know, once One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a great novel. Kinsey's novel is great, but also Milos Forman's adaptation of it is also excellent, even though he abandons much of what goes on in Chief Bromden's head. Like that whole, uh, I don't know, anybody, nobody in the room's read the novel, I assume. No. Okay. But there's a whole lot of like the mental illness of Chief Bromden throughout this novel and just what he's dealing with, like the machine look at uh, other human beings and 
all of this sort of stuff. And that's very, very fascinating, and it's, but it's super novelistic. They abandon it entirely in the, in the movie, and it works because it becomes a, a movie about this sort of anarchic freedom and it being crushed. Because thematically, that is what the novel's wrestling with, but it just goes a different route to get there. And it, and it really focuses on Jack Nicholson's character, and it does so successfully in that way. So um, it, it's, it's, it's a devotion thematically without a devotion um, narratively or even in terms of like um, set pieces. Interesting. Imagery. Uh, do, do we have anything else we want to say about adaptation or just the process of making a movie? Hmm, I don't think so. All right, well, I want to move on to a point that I wrote down that is just all caps, talk to your wife, you fucking dipshit. Yeah, uh, would be helpful. <laughs> which I, th I think... Uh, Was that a note or a reminder? Uh, both. It's both, right? Well, and I think this is what we're, we're going to get to. We we get to talk a lot about the way cinema engages with uh, feminism and femininity as like kind of a a cultural idea on this show a lot. But I don't think we talk about masculinity that much because films, when they do talk about it, usually do so badly or not very interestingly. And I think when the films address uh, feminism and femininity badly, it's honestly more interesting to kind of pick apart just because of the nature of uh, the Hollywood machine. But I think when a Hollywood studio film says something about the ways in which men behave or are taught to behave, I, I think we get somewhere really interesting sometimes. Uh, I, I like this idea that Lewis is existing in this mindset of uh, th that I'm sure a lot of people find themselves in, which is if you convince a woman that you're good enough to be married to and raise children with, you better keep it on the fucking level, pal. And if you ever screw up, you better not ever talk about it, right? And that, that that's this, a man's heart is stonier than blah, 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 right, right. blah, blah. We all lie, blah. All men are liars and don't tell everyone the whole truth ever, which is, don't do that. Yeah. Don't stop. Don't do that. I think it's, I think it's kind of a little bit plays a little bit with the whole like man as an island sort of thing absolutely he right. knows what's best father is patriarch he right? knows yeah. what's best he does not need to consult anyone else everyone else will only try to tell him not to do the thing that he has already decided in his heart of hearts to do exactly he's pig-headed well yeah. the sort of idea like some truths are too terrible for the woman to handle yeah right and, I, and, I must protect my frail wife from uh my bullshit because no she's, she's gonna tell you that you're being a fucking idiot bingo right. bingo talk and to she's your right. wife talk to your wife you idiot don't yeah. bury your son in a spooky cemetery don't do it. Yeah, just yeah. Spooky resurrection soil. Yeah. Well, yeah. That and and sometimes dead is better. I mean, that's the other side of it. Is 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 he's not you know reaching that other council and he's getting some of it from Judd. Judd's like, hey, don't do that. That this. It, I mean, the fact that Judd tells him the story. Hey, we tried that once and it was bad, right? It was bad. The kid came back, and he was crazy town. You don't want that. You try it. Gage comes back. He's crazy town. He kills your best friend, right, which we don't really quite get that from the film as, as, as much as we get from the novel. But Judd becomes uh, Lou's best friend in his entire life. He becomes like a, a replacement father for Lou Damn. and, like, says it out loud, like, I did never have a good dad, and I finally met him when I moved in this house. Like, wow. it, it's a, like that level of closeness between these two characters. Um, but... Nonetheless, he gets this guy killed, and he also gets his wife killed, and when his wife gets killed by, he goes, wait a minute. Okay, Gage. Hold on. Ga I, I know. Look, Let I me do know. the math real quick. Yeah. Gage was dead too long. He was embalmed. 
Yeah. If I put Rachel in this quickly, it'll be fine. Yeah. This is like watching someone reason who has a gambling addiction. I was just, I swear to God, I was going to say this. It's, it's like watching an addict make promises and bargains with themselves, right? Specifically, well, I would say yeah. specifically a gambling addiction because you say, all I got to do, I just need a hundred more dollars and then I'm going to make it I all I just got to break even. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm going to fix everything that I fucked up before. See, I, I see it as especially Rachel being out of town, right? I'm just, I'm just going to get high this one more time. And then I'll start going to meetings. Then I'll start going to the methadone clinic. Right. I'm just gonna get. I'm just gonna re up this one more time, and then it's done. The kids are out of the house for the weekend. Everything's fine. Nobody can get in trouble, except your wife's worried about you because she loves you, you idiot, and she wants you to not do any dumb more voodoo. I'm sorry. I've I've uh, been naked in a bathtub while a cat's entered the room. Angry or not, that's a scary situation to find yourself in. <laughs> that's well, the universe telling you to like re-examine some stuff, buddy. All things considered, with King's background, that's a really interesting reading. Yeah. I, I think King, as uh, as a troubled father, is the most interesting version of King. Because well, I and think, as an addict as well, yeah. Yeah, he writes about the struggles of how do I be a good husband and father in a really personal way. And I, I think that, that's what I think makes King's work so rewarding and what makes people so drawn to him is he is a very open-hearted and emotionally honest guy and he writes about i think the kind of men that he saw growing up the kind of men he tried to stop himself from being mm-hmm. and the kind of man he probably was at different points in his life uh i mean now you see him and his sons his adult sons and children in the press talking about you know really getting along but i'm sure that wasn't always the case i mean their dad's basically been famous uh the most famous novelist in the world for their entire lives so i am sure that much of uh, Pet Cemetery uh, comes, especially the addiction stuff, comes from King's own troubles, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, I, I think, what I would say is the last major theme, which is everybody's going to die. Yeah, this and, is the uh, the uh, bad Job stuff we're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, you've got to come to grips with the fact. And, and all of that, and we've talked about this on the show more than once, the sort of protecting children from that idea or the sort of insulating your own lives from the reality that one, if you get married – one of you is going to bury the other one. That's the job. That's what's going to happen. This is the gig you're you signing know, up for. I mean, yeah. well, divorce is a thing. But you know what I'm saying. If you make it to the end, the end is one of you dies. Well, then it turns into a contest of who dies, who lives longer. <laughs> right, right. He does. When you're married, you you just you, you don't just, want to die first. You just try to, well, you, or try, you do want to die you first. You try to die first so you don't have to bury the other yeah. one. Yeah, when you're divorced, you're trying to outlive the other one. Right, because... <laughs> Yes. I only know like four divorced people, but this is what they all say, and I, I take their word as gospel. You just want to live longer than the other one? I know a divorced, a divorced <laughs> person. then you win. That, I know a divorced is, person. Is that That's the ultimate I, win. I know a divorced person who outlived their ex, and yes, they look put at that it, one in the prenup. They look at it as winning. Wow. I have no response to that. <laughs> it was a complicated relationship. <laughs> is, I, it sounds quite simple to me. Hatred. Moving on. Uh, I, well, no, I think this is a good place for us to be. Uh, the, yes, let's move on from that specificity. <laughs> uh, it, it comes back to this idea of refusing to accept what the universe gives you, right? Right. Uh, what Sometimes that's going to be a uh, fun stuff, like getting to become a doctor and buy a big-ass house in Maine, and sometimes that's going to be your kid getting killed. Well, yeah, that or Ellie just asking the question, is church going to die? Yes. Yes. Church will die. Church will die. You will outlive your cat most likely. I mean, again, Gage doesn't end up outliving the cat. Well, I guess he does. It depends. Uh, yeah. Technically. Well, well, te- yes. well, the resurrections of church, but yeah. 
Yeah, it's dicey. <sighs> but uh, complicating that a little bit. But nonetheless, the fact is, you know, odds are yes, but maybe not. And you don't know. And that sort of precarity, right, the precariousness of that is uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. But everybody's going to die. And um, that is the sort of existential thing that we have to live for uh, or sort of reckon with. And at what point do you tell a child, we're going to die, you're going to die? Like one out of every one things dies. That's just how it works. And um, there is a weird way that 20th century culture and 21st century culture thereafter um, has removed itself from the entire history of human civilization where death was – regular part of our living i mean we were around the animals that we ate and so we knew okay yes you know rooster the chicken used to be alive and now he's soup and that or whatever fried chicken is that better than soup i feel like i just made kirsten very sad um (laughs) but you know that was a thing i'm like we were like familiar with that and people would you know um the the People died at home. They didn't yeah. die at hospitals. We didn't warehouse our 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 um, deathing industries. Man, I can't wait to die at home. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> I would much rather die at home. Well, yeah, if given a choice. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, I, I was watching the first couple episodes of Breaking Bad the other day, and like, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I could get treatment, and I could be in a hospital, and all that kind of stuff, or I could feel okay and then suddenly die at home. I would kind of prefer that right i don't know if i've talked about this on the show before but yeah i i had a, a panic attack that involved a pretty long lapse of lucidity and uh, regaining uh full faculties in a hospital bed is scary very unpleasant yeah it feels like hell uh so don't do it but also i, I think what we're getting at here is you can't be afraid of death because that's just going to stop you from cherishing the relationships you have with the people around you right, right? and i think it it effectively stunts your growth and i I think we get we what we get here is dr frankenstein as job Mm -hmm. we we remove the science and make it all magic but it it becomes if you if the universe hands you a bad hand what do you do with that do you choose to try and move forward and be somebody that is able to help others with your own pain or do you hide from that pain and try to you know, become a gambling addict or, uh, you know, resurrect people. Like, it's whatever whatever you do to wrestle with your, your grief and your pain is going to define you. And, and how do we let that make us our best selves and not our worst selves, right? Well, I think the failure to deal with it sets you up for the abyss. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem is that, okay, yes, indeed, you can insulate your life. You can hide your children. You can hide yourself. You can not attend funerals. You can sort of pretend like all the stuff that you know goes on around us doesn't ever happen. But then what's going to happen is somebody close to you is going to die, and you're going to be forced to be in that situation. And then you're in the abyss well, without and, any sort yeah. of like um, pre-preparation, right? And Lewis gets more from the universe than Job gets from God, right? I mean, Lewis has a spectral figure saying, don't do this. Yeah. Don't do this. Uh, Job's uh, cries to, of why fall on deaf ears. Yeah. Uh, at, at the very least, Lewis has this uh, zombie ghost trying to tell him how to be right. Uh, it, it's an interesting, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting remix of some very, I mean, very ancient uh, historical uh, cultural myths, right? I right, mean, absolutely. A, uh, that's that's something I like about King, too, is the ways in which he remixes 
um, Western folklore into his into his work is really cool. Whether it's you know the idea of uh, stolen uh, Native burial grounds having turned rotten because of uh, colonialism, or it's you know bringing in these themes of uh, the Book of Job. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't think I'm putting that on the film. I think it's definitely. I think it's in totally there. there yeah. yeah, but. Uh, I, I just uh, yeah, I'm glad we talked a little bit about how this film wrestles with people who don't wrestle with death. That's all I've got thematically. Uh, I wrote down that Zelda is depression. Uh, that's all Ooh. I've got uh, because mm. Zelda says to Rachel, "I'm going to put you down in a way that you're never going to want to get back up. I'm going mm. to I, now that you're here. I in in this case, I is the spirit of the pet cemetery, right? But I'm I'm going to put you down. The so Wendigo, far. yeah, yeah, it's the Wendigo. You're going to never want to get back up after I show you what I'm about to show you, which is your son again, and that's a that's a yet another uh, moment Damn. in the film. Yeah, the film really suplexes uh, the interior lives of its characters. It's just too bad we don't. I'm sure that moment in the book is way better. I, it's uh, awesome. Yeah, I'm sure it's spectacular. But in the film, it's just yeah. I, I had to go paint that subtext in myself. The film didn't really give me that. Sure. And, that's the job of the film, right? Is to make you want to put that subtext in there yourself, not to make you work for it. But yeah, that's all I had to say. Alrighty. Um what do we do now? Well, Dustin, uh I don't know this. We still part. render a verdict. Do we, we render a verdict? Okay, so show the trash. Time, it is time to do that. We've already done our else slash insteads by expanding our syllabus. So, Arthur, do you like this movie? And if you do like this movie, that's all I want to hear you say. I don't like this movie. It's going in the trash. <laughs> it doesn't have the same vitriol of something like Hostiles. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's not that. good. It's not worth the time. I, I think there are better movies in the orbit. There are better Stephen King adaptations. Uh, there are better movies and shows about grief as we've uh, highlighted in depth. Uh, and so I'm totally trashing uh, Pet Cemetery. That oh. is a faux show. All righty. All right. Well, hey, Kirsten. What do you say, shelf or trash for Pet Cemetery? Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go the same route as Arthur and just sort of gently elbow it off of the shelf and into the trash off of the can. bed into the uh, end table. Yes, <laughs> right into the <laughs> absolutely. Uh, again, honestly, probably even with less fervor than that actor delivered that <laughs> scene with. Uh, it just I don't know. It didn't. I didn't really care. It didn't really need to get made, I don't think. I think that, again, yeah, it pulls from a lot of movies that are better than it. Uh, and it just, there, there are better Stephen King movies. Just go read the book. I assume it's very good. Yes. I've it, heard it really nothing is. but great things. And I can, and knowing his writing style and, uh, I, I'm just I'm just absolutely positive that the book is better. I don't think that the movie needed to happen. Although I guess I am glad. I, May it may or may not have still been made in the year 2019. Whether or not there would have been an 89. Yeah, no. The the Stephen King Gold Rush is entering its uh, its third age. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think it just didn't really even need to get made. I'm just gonna toss it gently in the trash and then gently not not, not tell my wife about it. <laughs> Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Hey, Dalton, shelf or trash for Pet Cemetery? Yeah, I'm with you guys. It, th- this doesn't need to be on anybody's shelf. It does not need to be canonized. It's fine. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll sit with it while it dies after it got hit by a bus. Like, I'll... <laughs> so you're not going to Zelda so that you're, thing. You're, you're gonna, gonna, yeah, you're not going to deny it. You're going to nurture yeah. it. So I'll, you're not you're not going to peel it off of the front lawn of your across the street neighbor. The you're just going to leave no. it there. Excellent. You're not going to throw it a pork chop and then inject it with morphine. No, I'll, I'll call the time of death. I'll, I'll just sit with it like. Like what? What is? Oh my God! Call what, is, hospice. what does she call Pascal? Uh, Pax Pax Cow Pax Cow. I'll uh, I'll <laughs> sit with Pax Cow uh, 
as as it as it goes away. Uh, talk to your wife. Don't talk to Pet Cemetery. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm also gonna say trash. I mean, I like the movie, but mostly, I mean, almost entirely for nostalgic reasons. I think there are very very arresting moments, but those moments don't coalesce into something that's really all that worthwhile. And so for me, I, I'm kind of with you guys. I mean, I I, I I'm like. Kirsten was saying in her review she, how much I desperately wanted her to like this movie. I haven't watched this movie in 20 years probably or longer. And uh, coming back, I'm like, no, no. Shut up. Oh, did you see me mouth old Arthur? Sorry about that. Shut up. And... <laughs> when I outlive both of you, it's going to be very That's sad. Accurate. I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> That's I'm true. so furious. I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm pretty accurate on That's that one. That's a fair point. Uh, anyway, um, so no, just no. I mean, I like it, but no. I mean, watch it. It's streaming currently on Amazon and Hulu, and if you are like a, a horror hound, a gore hound, a Stephen King hound, uh, if those things are very much... The, if you're excited about the remake. If you're excited about the remake. I, I think it's good prep work, but it's 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 very much homework if you don't have time to read the book just watch this because it is the abbreviated version there On, you go honestly you'd have more fun with my crazy art films and reading a 17th century or 18th century novel um than you would probably watching this movie uh, before moving along, I saw that you watched the making of documentary on I did. Prime. How was that? It's not great. Okay, no, it's too bad. There but it's go. it's interesting background. It, trivia is great, but as far as like a well made movie documentary, not so much. Wait, it, what is what is what is this? Unearthed and unbound. Unearthed and it's like the making un- of Pet Cemetery. I don't know. Unearthed and there's something. a documentary. Yeah, yeah it's on what? Shutter. Okay. And uh, it's I mean they got a great inter- set of interviews. I mean the kid that you know that was also in Dream Child who plays Gage sure. is on there and he t- I mean they get everybody like all those little supporting actors and actresses. All of those people are there and Heather Langenkamp shows up because you know she nice. was in the Nightmare on Elm Street with him and also was dating one of the effects artists on Pet Cemetery huh. at the time. So, I mean, they, they they do a lot of stuff talking about that. There's a great little memorial moment for Fred Gwynn, who is excellent in the film. I'm a, He's I won't, so good. I won't lie. Uh, but, I mean, unless it's like your jam, it, it, I liked it, but it's not good. Does that make sense? Can yeah. I say both those things at the same yeah. time? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, definitely. So, anyway, that's it. Um, so, Women's History Month's over now, right? We've done a movie? Nope. We, we got, got one more. We, we got, got two more. more, in fact. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, so... Um, you signed a contract. I did. Yes. Mm-hmm. By all uh, means, yes, let's relegate women's history you, uh, to one month. That's right. One month, ladies and one. gentlemen. Just the one. <laughs> yep. The half, other 11 can be white men's history. Half Please, of the human thank population you, is down to a month. You, you heard it here first from Kirsten Thurkelson. Okay, good. Well, thanks, Kirsten. So we're done. Nope, we're gonna. Oh, just kidding. Nope, you signed a contract. Dalton uh, buried that microphone out in the uh, the podcasting cemetery, so we've got to do it one more time. Back. Well, in honor of women's sometimes <laughs> dead is better. In honor of Women's <laughs> hey. History Month and Dustin's uh, lack of ability to read his contracts, we are going to be watching truly one of the great films of the 1990s. We are staying in this uh, span of years for our next episode when we check out Penelope Spheris's Wayne's World. Party down, party on. Excellent. Uh, real quick, uh, as we're closing the show out, time to do that thing that I do. Uh, it's Beefcake Watch. Uh, Beefcake Corner, where we talk about the hottest boys in all of Hollywood. Did you guys know that Lewis's clothes had to be baggier because he was too hunky? <laughs> they had to, the costume. I did not They know had that. to costume the guy that played Lewis with baggier clothes because he was too cut. When you guys brought up Beefcake Watch to me, I, 
I gotta be honest with you. I was completely surprised. I did not get beefcake vibes from this man I, at I guess. all. I'm curious to hear what we're gonna do with Mike Myers next week. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, oh. So the the cat playing Lewis, uh, they filmed the dream sequence where he walks to the pet cemetery at night uh, with him and his underoos, uh, and then they had to reshoot it because the studio thought he was too distractingly sexy. Too hunky. Is that why he wakes up still in his hospital scrubs yeah. the next morning? Because that made absolutely no sense as a decision yes. to me. That's a fine-looking man there. <laughs> Apparently. Who sleeps in his hospital scrubs? Hey, it's an exhausting job. After after <laughs> treating a man who's been fatally injured by a truck. Okay, fine, whatever. Maine. Maine's funny. <laughs> So there you have it. We will be talking about Wayne's World. We will continue this. Uh, this. Oh, real quickly, uh, Arthur uh, had some fun on Twitter uh, and was letting the world know. Also say things about Twitter. Well, that's Go. what I'm about to do. Arthur had some fun on Twitter uh, this week. If you want to be part of that fun, you can find us at good underscore trash. That's a Twitter account both for this show, the genre cast, as well as basically everything we're doing. If you want to be uh, up to date on good trash media, just follow us at good underscore trash. But Arthur let the world know that here on the genre cast this month, we are going to be looking at films directed by women. Uh, we have the Feminist Critique podcast that is based out of both Alberta and South Carolina, so that's fun. Uh, they reminded us, us of 1998's The Paratrap, starring Lindsay Lohan, Whale Rider, and Bend It Like Beckham, and Little Women, the 94 version. Uh, all directed by women and all have uh, great female leads, so those were some uh, recommendations thrown to us. Uh, and then our, our friends over at Chicks with Flicks, who we've uh, loved dearly for many years now, uh, said, My brilliant career and Winter's Bone. And Support the Girls is also pretty great. Not directed by uh, a woman, but uh, just she just she they just wanted to give that some love. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're having fun over on Twitter. Uh, we're doing the, the combat in the trenches of social media. That is at good underscore trash. Uh, you can also find everything we're doing, whether it's written articles from Arthur, from Dustin, from our very own uh, Frightful Friend, Kirsten Thurkelson, and all of the podcasts we've ever made or podcasts that are just on the network. That's going to be goodtrashmedia.com for all of that information. Uh, we're done. Dustin, you want to take us on home, buddy? Uh, yeah, you guys keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast. Okay. Good Trash Genrecast is a product of Good Trash Media. For info on everything Good Trash and sh- more shows just like this, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro and outro music are made by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers. You can find more of his stuff nowhere because he is staying off the web. 